WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to the Prologue, a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren, and I'm going to be your host. I'm an author myself. You can find my work at Amazon.com, BooksAmillion, and BarnesandNoble.com. I also invite you to visit my personal website, www.dougdahlgren.com. There's all the information, you, hopefully, that you could ever want about myself and my books located on those websites. Now, we call this show the prologue because that's what it is. It's an introduction. And while those introductions are mainly about writers, we also love to bring you interesting people with a good story to tell from other fields and other endeavors as well. Now, if you don't have a pen and a pencil or a pencil handy, please get one and get you something to write on. Your arm or your hand will do just fine, but paper usually holds up better. Now, we'll be offering information throughout the program that I hope you'll want to make note of, like this, for instance. If you or someone you know has a book or that interesting story that needs to be told, I want you to reach out to me through email. There's two email addresses you could use either one, doug at americaswebradio.com or doug at DougDahlgren.com. Either one of those, I'd love to speak with you or the person you're talking about, about being on a future program here on the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is an award-winning author with over nine books, including The Covington Chronicles. That's a unique four-book series with standalone yet overlapping stories and characters. Now, born on a farm in Hot Coffee, Mississippi, that's in the southern part of the state near the Boot Hill, our guest now resides in Shreveport, Louisiana, from where she'll be on in just a moment, right after I mention a couple of groups that we're very happy to have as listeners on America's Web Radio. First, our folks serving in the armed forces of this country. They're all over the world, working hard to keep us safe back home, so we can live our lives that we so often take for granted. Freedom is not free. It is bought and paid for daily by our men and women in uniform, and we want to thank each and every one of them for all they do. I also want to mention our first responders who are here at home, those police, fire, and EMT personnel who rush to our aid when we need their help. Thank each of you guys for what you do, and thank you for being there. Now, Our book today has received a very high honor through the American Christian Fiction Writers Association. It achieved an impressive sales record in the Amazon Christian Historical category for over a 12-month period and has the author recognized by the ACFW as a qualified independent published author. That author is Mary Lou Cheatham. Her book is The Dream Bucket. And this is your prologue. It's 1909 in southern Mississippi. Our protagonist, Judy Cameron, is dreaming about summer and school being out. Life is good when you're 10 years old, and your major ambition of the moment is to go fishing and just have some fun. But life can turn on a dime, or in this case, on a word. A word spoken in anger that awakens Trudy from her sleep and begins a downward spiral to a young girl's world. The the words escalate and become a sound that the young girl has trouble believing. The dream bucket touches all the emotional bases 
with love, abuse, loss, fear, and redemption. The characters spring to life in the world our author paints for us, and the reader is drawn into the search for the dream bucket. Its author, Mary Lou Cheatham, is with us today. Welcome to the prologue, Mary Lou. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure indeed. We're very honored to have you here. Now, Trudy and her family initially have it pretty good for a farm family at the turn of the century. Would you describe the Cameron Farm a little bit for us? Well, it's a farm that's been passed down through the generations. Um, it started as an antebellum home, and they live in this uh, wonderful, beautiful home with, with some impressive columns out front. And their dad, William Cameron, grows a little of everything. He has a dairy, and he has a big garden. He sells produce out of that. And he has a huge corn crop. Just a typical Mississippi farm of a little over 100 years ago. But he's a little more prosperous than his neighbors because he has inherited money. He hoards his money. Um, and if his family needs something, he will pull out enough money to buy whatever they need. Now, even into this I guess we could say it's a bucolic setting. It's very nice, picturesque. All's not quite as it seems. You, you fairly early on, you introduced domestic violence into the story and, and the side effects that that can have. Talk a little bit about that for us. Okay. It, your first impression that you get of Zoe, his wife, and that's Trudy's mother, is that she's sort of a, a surly kind of woman. She doesn't really relate well to people. The reason is that she's being abused and she, she tries to cover it up. In the opening scene, excuse me, Trudy hears her parents in the next room fighting over money. Uh, she knows he has that, that William has quite a bit of money stored away somewhere and she just wants to know where the money is kept. She doesn't want to take it away from him and spend it. She just likes to know in case something will happen bad someday, and she, or if he should die, or whatever, that she would be able to have the money to provide for the two children. Well, Trudy and her older brother, um, Billy Jack, or Billy, and she uh, asks him where he keeps his money. Well, they have a big fight, and Trudy hears them in the next room, and uh, William is slapping her around. Well, now, did I answer all that question? I, I, think, I think you did, yes, ma'am. Now, the, the thing about it, the characters, some of your characters within the story are kind of like modern-day folks today. We tend to uh, hear this and not yet do anything. We, we seem to be a little accepting about what's going on. Right. Talk about that a little bit, would you? Okay. Uh, I've had a couple of people who reviewed the book, and they were a little disturbed about it. And one of them I actually responded to, she was saying, you know, why why we have these uh, people who are being mistreated, and what are we going to do about it, and why doesn't the writer react? Well, that's just sort of the way it was back then, and I think it's that way quite a bit still today. Uh, people tend to turn uh, their eyes and look at something else. They don't want to face it. It's, it's unpleasant. Uh, I noticed what I've heard about women who go to uh, rescue shelters for, after being abused. Usually the door is locked. And I think the door is locked 
they try to put the woman where the man can't find her. But I think the door's locked for two reasons, because not only do they not want the woman, the man to get to the woman, but the woman would be glad to go back to the man. And she would always try a little harder, try to do whatever she had done. And this goes throughout the book, the dream bucket. It's always has a default thought that she goes back to it over and over again. What did I do to make the marriage turn out the way it did? What could I have done differently? I was usually this kind of woman takes all the blame on herself. And whatever the man says she did, she um she goes along with it. And the the problem is that when somebody tries to step in and do something about it, the woman defends the man who's been beating on her. Either physically or emotionally. It's a it's not a good yeah, it's not a good situation. The time period right. I wanted to ask you though, you mentioned earlier that uh, William was a bit more prosperous and probably uh, kind of high on the social ladder there in the community. Do you think right. that his status may have played a role in people not wanting to step in? Because I know today everybody wants to mind their own business, but back in those days, uh, the ladies would kind of get together at the general store and talk about such as that and force the husbands through one way or the other to go deal with it. But uh, William was exempt from that. Do you, you think it's possible his status played a role? I think so. I think also people probably just really did not believe that William could have been that bad a guy because on the surface he was just uh, a person that everybody admired. Everybody liked him. Okay. Now, you do the setup very well. You describe the situation. You describe the... Uh, the discord between the husband and wife and the fact that there's money hidden, and then there's a major tragedy that completely turns the Cameron world upside down. Uh, and that's fairly early on in the book as well. Do you want to tease the listeners a little bit, or how much do you want to tell about what happened? We can go ahead and tell it because it's so early in the story. In fact, I started to make this the first, the, the opening scene, but I thought I need to have, you know, back up and show some of this uh, abuse that you were talking about. Uh, a little girl and her brother and the two kids who live down the road are walking home from school and they see that the house is burning down. Mm. And it, there's nothing left but those columns. And the mother is out in the yard and she's just sort of out of her mind. She's, she's so overcome with grief that she doesn't even know who she is. She thinks she's a little girl. She doesn't even recognize her own children for a few minutes. And... Trudy, who loved her father, uh, she just adored Papa, and Papa could solve anything. So she keeps thinking, well, Papa will show up in a minute. Maybe Papa's at the barn or whatever. And then she realizes that Papa's body is lying in a wagon with a black blanket over it. And Papa has walked into the fire. And uh, so Trudy has lost her anchor. She's lost her Papa. She's... In the last few days, she's realized some things about it she didn't know before. Uh, for one thing, he's been carrying on a flirtation with Trudy and Billy's teacher, and that that really embarrassed her. I mean, and uh, she's realized that her father's not always good to her mother, and she, she just wants to have a little talk with him and straighten things out. To make things worse, uh, Billy tells her that her father, who just seemed to adore her, and he's always calling her the little princess, 
uh, belittles Trudy in the background and says ugly things about her. And she was just shocked to find that out because she thought uh, that she was just her father's little darling. So everything in her life is just swept away. I mean, and Trudy's just in a bad situation. She, uh, she has to get along with her brother, which is sort of a, a problem sometimes. Black kids are. And then her mother has lost her mind. So for just a few days there, Trudy is having a struggle. The uh, neighbor down the road steps in and tries to help. Okay. I don't want to tell too much. Right. Well, no, I think you've said it up very well. Far. No, you, you, no, you. I don't think so. But the story is the Dream Bucket, and this is actually number three in a series, the Covington Chronicles. Tell our, tell our listeners real quick where can they find out more about you and the Covington Chronicles, including the Dream Bucket. Okay, I primarily sell excuse me, on Amazon.com. The first book in the series, Secret Promise can be bought on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. All the other books can be bought on Amazon.com or on CreateSpace. As you pointed out, I am an independent publisher. Yes. Okay. Now, so, uh, we're here this morning. We're here this morning on the prologue. We're talking with Mary Lou Cheatham. Her book today is The Dream Bucket, and we're going to be back with more about Mary Lou and her stories after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the prologue on America's Web Radio. We're here this morning with Mary Lou Cheatham. Mary Lou has a number of books, including a four-book series that are known as the Covington Chronicles. We're talking primarily about book three, and, and the unique thing about this series is they are all standalones. 
the, the community of Hot Coffee, Mississippi, is the base for all the Covington Chronicles books, though, is it not, Mary Lou? It is not. It is not. I'm sorry. Some of it happens in Hot Coffee, but primarily uh, things happen in Taylorsburg. Actually, the farm is close to Hot Coffee, but when people go into town, they go to Taylorsburg, which is, and you have no reason to know this because you're just focusing on the dream bucket, but in the other, in the first two stories, that um, the action takes place in Taylorsburg. Occasionally, the family, the Cameron family in the Dream Bucket will go to town, which is Taylorsburg, and Hot Coffee is just a little community down the road. So Now let me ask you this. Could you hit Hot Coffee with a rock if you threw it hard enough? <laughs> if you aim really carefully. Okay, all right, well... <laughs> All right, well, I stand corrected anyway. But it's in the basically, they're all the stories, the point is, they're all in basically the same area. Is that right? Yes, yes. Okay. Right. Now, how has that area or part of Mississippi, how has it changed even since you were there? Because you grew up in hot coffee, Mississippi. Well, oh, let me just say that, uh, let, let me back up on that one a little bit. Uh, this is in the early 1900s, and the fascinating thing was that, and, and I'm skipping subjects here, but this part of Mississippi was, uh, there were some plantations, and there were some uh, small farms who had small numbers of slaves, but a lot of this part of the state was um, unionist, which means that they... They were loyal to the Union. This is the Jones County area. Um, but anyway, Hot Coffee is in Covington County, and Taylorsville, actually, is in Smith County. And then there's Jones County. And, um, and during this uh, time that the book was written, there was a lot of timber business and railroad business. And because of the position that the people here took in the Civil War, they did not have as much punishment in the reconstruction as other parts of Mississippi did. So it fared so, better. It fared better than it some fared other. Better. Okay. Right. Nowadays, um, the large area, it, there's, it's always a timber area. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, uh, Jones County, Laurel, which is a neighboring town, has quite a bit of um, chicken interest. Uh, chicken farms, uh, chicken produce, and that brings to mind something else. Um, I'm skipping around a bit now, um, and I was just thinking about my nephew and his interest in that. But anyway, I think he's primarily interested in the chickens in Georgia. I'm once away from the subject here. The Well, just the change in the area. There was quite a bit of time that had gone, you know, from the early 1900s until even when you were there, and, and maybe this will help kind of get you thinking what I'm going for. The story is is set 40-something years before your time in that area. Yes. How did you research the conditions? How did you look back to find out what life was like in the early 1900s in that area? I did not have to do research. I sat by the fireplace when I was a little girl in the winter in my it was either my father or my mother telling wonderful stories about everything that happened back then. 
And yeah, I, there were very few things I had to look up because life really, to be honest with you, didn't change that much in, during that period of time except when war was going on. You know, there were two wars <laughs> during those years, but um, mostly it was uh, the same kind of farming that people had always done. I mean, just more cars and tractors yeah. and so forth. But now, the dairy farming. Still, that's the same attitude. Yeah, okay. the, the dairy, the dairy farming. farming uh, I, I think some people had trouble with this because this is not class A dairy farming. This is um, this is a kind of I think they call it class B dairy farming. It's the farmers around there would hand milk their cows and they would send their milk up to Newton, Mississippi, to make craft cheese. And sometimes they would skim the milk, and sometimes they would just send all the milk and in, in the uh, and ship it on the train. When I was growing up, my dad was doing that, and a truck would come and get the milk. We first took it on the tr- and put it on the train, and then later, as I became a teenager, the truck would actually come to the farm and get the milk and, every day and take it. Yeah. Now, the dream bucket has at its core a parental conflict over money. That That's, that's yeah. an age-old thing. Um, you already went into a little bit about that. Uh Basically, Zoe and William were kind of arguing over where the money was. How much more detail do you want to give us about that conflict? Uh, it is very important to what happens in the story, uh, but how much more of that part of it do you want to give away this morning? Not not very much. Um, I don't even tell what the dream bucket is until way over into the story, and I sort of want people to read and find out for themselves. I mean, there's a little unusual twist there that... Um, That's quite true. And, and you know what? That kind of leads us towards the next area we want to talk The town, after the fire and after the loss of William, the family's world is, is literally upside down. Here they were the most prom, uh, prosperous family in the area, and now they've lost the father, they've lost the house, they've lost the ability to rebuild, really, with him gone. Uh, the town rallies to their aid, but that that's really not enough. Uh, Trudy's mom, Zoe, is struggling to keep the family going and help them survive. Right. And then... But the main people in the town who have are the... Uh, well, the church helps a little, they give a pounding, and people help them a little bit at first. But uh, there's the mercantile, and Jake McGregor, who is really a heroic character coming through all the books. The first book in the series, Secret Promise, uh, is, introduces Jake McGregor, and he starts off kind of as uh, a spoiled brat, but he becomes bitter about his situation. He becomes a very likable hero. People tell me they, they just love him. Well, he is important in this book and also the second one, The Courtship of Miss Loretta Larson. And then he is he is Zoe's hero, not um, not like a boyfriend. He has his wonderful wife, Caroline, but he just helps that family and he keeps them together. And he is the strongest man in the community. Also, there's another good character in the town is the the town marshal, Marshal Canterbury. And uh, they're just really good, strong, helpful men. And, of course, Sam, who lives down the road, Samuel Benton. Now, you, you 
wonderfully describe how the church steps in. There, there is great inspiration and, and description of how the church reacts to this in that time period. And then the characters, like you mentioned, there's really strong, fleshed-out characters that you have throughout the book. And there are some conflicts with other characters uh, throughout the story. Uh, do you care to touch on any of those? Oh, well, let's see. I think I've already mentioned that Trudy and her brother, Billy Jack, or Bill, actually, in the fourth book of the series, he decides he wants to be called Will. <laughs> but anyway, she and her brother um, love each other, but they fight like typical little kids, you know, brothers and sisters have a have uh, little wars. Zoe wants to do everything for herself and mother, but this neighbor who lives down the road, Sam, keeps getting into her business, and um, she really finds him irritating. There's quite a bit of tension between Zoe and Samuel. Samuel has been her husband's best friend, and, and Samuel's wife died in childbirth, and he's trying to rear their two children, twins, a boy and a girl, and of course Zoe's always helped him with that, but now it's awkward between them, they're awkward when they're alone, they're awkward when they go around people, and and that tension, well, I don't want to tell too much, you can just imagine where it be. Well, absolutely. Now the characters, they are very well thought out and very well explained, and they kind of come off the page, really, when you're reading do those characters that you've created, are they from people that you've known or people that you currently know? Well, that's a good question. Um, nobody in the book, when I first started writing, my characters were exactly like people I knew and I just changed them up a little bit. But now what I write, nobody is exactly like anybody I've ever known. Uh, there's somewhat like people I know. I mean, I get ideas, but they're original characters. Okay. And this brings to mind another thing. You, you are talking about the characters and how they're written and so forth, and people say, well, you're a character-driven writer or a plot-driven writer. Right. Actually, I prefer to think myself as one who's driven by the setting. I have these characters that come to mind, and I just create the characters, I visualize them totally, and how they feel, more how they feel than how they look, and then I put them in a situation, in a setting, and then all I have to do is just let them act the way they would with a given problem. In other words, what would what would you do if your house burned down and you couldn't find um, any way to make a living? Well, what you would do would probably be different from what Zoe Cameron would do. I'm sure it would be. So, see, it's, that determines the plot. Absolutely. How the people are going to write, react in that given situation. You know, I've heard people say that that's the secret to a successful movie or TV series. It's when you establish those characters to the point that the reader or the viewer has an expectation of what they will do, how they'll react, and then you put them in that situation and they pay off. They actually go and right. do it and react the way the viewer is expecting or the reader is expecting. And, uh, you know, it sounds silly in a way, but it works. You know, you see it all the time. i got to ask you this, Mary Lou. Is this book in any shape, form, or fashion autobiographical? Autobiographical. Okay. When 
Well, there are some things, like I've already told you, about the dairy. Um, and when I was a senior in high school, I had actually gone up um, to Jackson, Mississippi, to visit um, my brother, John Gregg, and Sue Gregg, and their children, um, one of which is Jameson Gregg, who's that you've interviewed on here. I'd gone up to their house with my mother for Christmas, and my dad stayed back home. But while we were gone, our house burned down to the ground. Oh, my. And our father went back into the house. It, this is just really what always touched me. He went back in the house to get some uh, blankets that his uh, mother, who was uh, pretty large part Native American had made. He wanted to get those blankets out, and he wanted to get some uh, family records, and he went into the fire to risk getting those things. Now, let's make them wait. I want to go through a break here. I don't want you to lose your thought. I want to finish this story, but we're here with Mary Lou Cheatham, and and we're going to finish this exciting story when we get back from these messages. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. We're here. We've held you over with a cliffhanger. We're talking with Mary Lou Cheatham, talking about the dream bucket and how that relates to her if it's autobiographical in any shape or form. And Mary Lou, pick up with the story. Go back a little bit and tell them how the fire got going and where you are and what's going on. don't know how the fire started, but my dad was down there milking the cows. So you see there is some some bit of autobiography in this book. Uh, and he, he heard the explosion and then the... Uh, probably the butane tank blowing up. And so the house burned down, and we came home from visiting with Jameson's family, and we couldn't uh, see anything but just the house there. I mean, just 
sort of like one of the scrapbooks that we didn't have the columns. We weren't rich like that. But anyway, um, and then I was wondering, you know, where is my dad? Where is he? Where is he? This was at Christmas, when, like I said, when I was a senior in high school. So he came walking around beside the house, and that was a great relief to see him. Uh, he didn't telephone us or anything to tell us about it. You know, he just wait till we got home. And we had a shack that looked very much like the one on the cover. And it was what he could use for sharecroppers to live in. And he actually moved into the shack. Um, my mother rented an apartment in the town of Taylorsville and, um, right near the school where I could walk to school and, so um, she would go back and forth. Sometimes she would stay with him in that shack, and sometimes she would stay with me in the apartment. And the apartment was in this spooky house, had windows all around, just no walls, just one window after another. And at night, I was lonely, and I could sew. I mean, this, so I guess this is like Zoe, because she sews, and I could sew up a storm. I don't do that anymore. Uh, but anyway, somebody gave us a great big box of fabric, and I would stay awake sometimes almost all night sewing. So, you know, because I need some clothes. So so there are autobiographical parts in it, but nothing exactly. See, no characters exactly like anybody but else. Life, life experiences that you drew from. Yes. Oh, there we go. You, you mentioned listening to your mom and dad, and, and, uh, and in this situation had to really impress itself on you at a young age. I want to ask you this. Is there a particular character in your writing that most resembles Mary Lou Cheatham? Not, not in my current books. I did one with another pen name, and, and I won't go there. But, but nothing, nothing in these books is really that much like me. Uh, I'm not, I have some of the life experiences that Trudy had, but uh, Trudy is a very... I see little girl. She's 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 very concerned with other people, but she's a little bit um, difficult. She manages to have a conflict with just about everybody she comes across. I'm more of a, 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 a milder kind of person who wants to get along with everybody. We're still talking about characters now from these books. Uh, the, the first two of the Covington Chronicles, as many of our listeners are probably familiar with them. Uh, what characters overlap into the dream bucket? Okay, the first one, Secret Promise, uh, the the hero is Jacob McGregor, and he has the, the mercantile store, and he's in all the books. And his wife, Caroline, shows up a little bit. Then the next book, The Courtship of Miss Loretta Larson, um, Loretta Larson makes just a cameo appearance in the dream bucket, and you know, I can't tell you what that is because that would be a spoiler. Then the fourth book in the series um, is told, uh, people want to know more about what happened to Trudy, what happened to Trudy. Well, she's a year older, and she tells this one in the first person about a little neighbor, um, an African-American girl who lived next, uh, not too far from her, and this little girl was her friend, and uh, she met with a very tragic event in her life. I think I can tell you this without running too much in story, but uh, the little girl, Manuela Blaine, was 
assaulted by some people, and it changed her life entirely. My goodness. The Dream Bucket is number three, and it's getting all the attention right now. Um, right. It, it's and it's the one I wrote without any of it. The first two I tried to go very much to write romances, write them, you know, exactly like I thought I was supposed to. When I came to the Dream Bucket, I decided I'm going to write this any way I want to. And it's sort of disjointed, and I really don't care, but I just kind of put... Uh, you were telling me, um, well, I was talking to you yesterday, that you like to visualize things and scenes. Yes, ma'am. Well, these are the scenes that I saw in the Dream Bucket, and I just wrote the scenes as I saw them. People have told me this would make a good movie. I mean, it's, it doesn't fall in a logical order. It's just the way that I saw it. Well, the storyline would make a good movie. It really would. And, and the way you tell the story, uh, it, it's something that would draw people. I could see it on Hallmark, you know, Hallmark Hall of Fame. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, I was saying the Dream Bucket is getting all the attention, but this number three in a four-book series uh, you mentioned the others a little bit, teased us a little bit. How much more would you like to tell the listeners about the other books in the Covington Chronicles? Well, let me tell you about the fifth one I'm working on. Uh, is it okay if I... Sure. I think I told a little about the others. The fifth one is about a character who shows up who's was introduced in the Dream Bucket called Jeremy Smitherman. He's a bad little boy who dips um, Trudy's ponytails, I mean, pigtails in ink, but and then he, there's more about him and Manuela Blaine, and then uh, the fifth story is about him and his relationship. He has a, he's, he's a wonderful little boy, and he's getting older. He's a young teenage boy by then. His mother is sick. She has cancer. She, they back to their room. I'm not realizing what it is, and very early in the story, without telling too much. Um, his mother is cured of cancer, and this mysterious woman who comes to their house helps cure her of cancer, and then that changes the boy's life. I think if I tell any more, I'll be given a spoiler, so I'll stop there. Anyway, I'm writing this with a woman who actually lives near Taylorsville, and her name is Sarah Walker Gravel, and she is a writer. And we're co-authoring that one. Give her name again, please. Sarah Walker Gorell. Very good. Now, will you both... Uh, she has be... a blog. Okay. Tell us about that. Okay, she writes from her front porch. I think it's Mississippi front porch or something like that. Okay. All right, very good. Now, will you guys come back and tell us about that book when you have it published and it's out and available? We would love to do that. Very good, very good. Let's let's get away from the work and let's talk a little bit about you. Now you're from Hot Coffee, Mississippi. Did you go to school there? Uh, what was life like for you yeah. when you were little? <laughs> like you said, Hot Coffee is a place that if you just threw a rock at it, you, you couldn't hit it. And it's so tiny. Actually, I went to school in Taylorsville, and I changed it to Taylorsburg because <coughs> me, I run across a lot of my friends from childhood on Facebook, and I didn't want them to think I was writing a history of Taylorsville. I'm sure the difference, I'm sure the difference is, (laughs) (laughs) anyway, I'm sorry. Um, But but anyway, um, I went to school in Taylorsville. 
Okay. And then uh, later on, you went to college where, ma'am? Well, let's see. Um, I went around different places. I, I, my first summer out of high school, I went to Ole Miss, and I went to Millsaps. And then I married my first husband when I was 19 years old. I went to University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. I graduated from there with a, a degree in English. I went... Um, I taught in Greenville, Mississippi, and I went about halfway through a master's at Mississippi State University, and I um, stopped doing that. Well, anyway, I moved to Ruston, Louisiana, and when I was 40 years old, I went to Louisiana Tech and became an RN. Then I went back to Louisiana Tech and took some classes in playwriting, uh, to help me to work on my dialogue because I've always had this desire to be a writer. And I guess I can go ahead and tell you something about that. When I was 10 years old, uh, I had this wonderful teacher who inspired me. She wanted me to be a poet. And she had a deal with me, and she called me Mary Lou because there were five Marys in my class. And she'd say, well, Mary Lou, if you will finish your work fast, and she didn't want me to sit there and be bored, uh, I'll let you go out and sit on the cool sidewalk the cool walkway and write poems so you can imagine how hard I worked and everything I was doing to get my work done so I could go out there and write poems well when I got in the sixth grade I found out that I could entertain my classmates and be more popular if I would tell them stories so I decided that at that age that I was going to be a novelist someday I didn't get around to it until I was in my 50s and I wrote a story and I think it's not very good but a lot of people have read it um, and it's called Solomon's Porch and I, I use a pen name Jane Riley I, it's, it's sort of autobiographical with the names and places changed to protect the guilty uh, but it's pretty much the story of what happened to my first husband he had a disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome and he was paralyzed for five years and died. Mm. Um, he was a um, band director at Louisiana Tech. Then, um, I'm sort of rambling here, but anyway, he died in 2002. And uh, three years ago, I'm, I met uh, the most wonderful man, John Cook, and I met him on Match.com, and we got married the day after Christmas. I'm sorry, I just sort of took it around with it there. You're fine, you're fine. Let me ask you, what grades did you teach? I'm assuming you taught English. Yes. Um, it seemed I taught a different grade every year. I started in the 7th and worked up to the 12th, and then I started over again in the 6th. While I was in nursing school, I worked part-time and taught 6th grade. So, <laughs> well, that, that, that had to help. Did you have any budding writers in your classes? Oh, yes, it, I I don't really know. Uh, I, I know a couple of people, but I don't think any of them have really published any great novels or anything. Um, but they did enjoy but writing. I love to teach. Yes, I did love to teach writing, so I'd stay up all night long and read their papers. And this is one reason I didn't get around to writing until I was in my 50s, because I was so busy with all these other things. Okay, very good. Well, well, listen, folks. We're here. That'll that'll take up some time. That's for sure. We're here this morning with Mary Lou Cheatham. We're talking about number three of the Covington Chronicles. It's the Dream Bucket, and we're going to be back with more 
after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here on the prologue this morning with Mary Lou Cheatham. We're talking about number three in her Covington Chronicles series. The book is The Dream Bucket. Now, Mary Lou, your parents were both very talented storytellers. Did they share your stories outside of the immediate family or just around the fireplace at night? They loved to tell stories to their grandchildren. And my sister, Ruth, who's the person that I dedicated this book to, has been going through all her things, um, and she found, the other day, she found something that really amazed us. When my mother, uh, and when we never knew this, my mother uh, actually wrote a column for the Laurel Leader call and it never told us. And I thought that was kind of funny, you know, that she did this. Anyway, they, they loved the land, they loved the farm, and... They love having their grandchildren there, and uh, I have one daughter, Christy, and she she did not ever get to know her grandfather, but uh, this whole idea of the dairy had such a great influence on her, and now she's a dairy specialist, so I think it's, it's almost like it's in the genes, uh, this love for the land and love for farming. Telling stories. Story. There you go. Yeah. Now, being a novelist is basically being a storyteller. So sounds yes. like you sounds like you got that honestly. Yes, from both sides. Okay, and it must run in the family. Uh, the prologue was very honored to have your nephew Jameson Gregg on our show back on March twenty fifth of twenty sixteen. And for those who'd like to hear that, it's archived and it's available. Just go to the show's homepage and then go to uh, the prologue and scroll down to March twenty fifth of. 
2016, and you can hear Jameson Gregg telling everybody about his satirical novel, Luck Be a Chicken, that actually won him a rather prestigious award here in Georgia, Georgia Author of the Year, and uh, we were very proud to have him on. So you've got uh, quite a talented family there, don't you, Marianne? Mary Lou? I think so. All righty. Jameson's father also wrote a book, I think, back in about the 80s. His name was John Gregg, and it's um, it's a nonfiction book. It's called The Health Insurance Racket and How to Be It. It's, it's out of print, but I mean, it's just really a prophetic book. Okay. Um, now, the, the two professions that you work in, other than being a writer, uh, you were a teacher and you were a nurse, did either of those, and, and this may be an odd question, but did either of those slow you down in, in preparing you to be a writer, or did they perhaps propel by giving you uh, storylines and things like that? Well, both. I didn't have time to to work on my writing. I was uh, very busy with all the things in my life. At the same time, um, they filled me with ideas of what I'd like to write about. Oh, I'm sure. Now, you mentioned several times, and uh, you are self-published. Is that correct? Okay. Now, you're certainly not alone there, particularly in this day and age, but you stand out in that arena. Uh, I mentioned earlier that American Christian historical writers uh, gave you quite a recognition on the dream bucket. How was that achieved? What what happened there? Tell us a little bit more about that. ACSW, American Christian Fiction Writers, I wanted to enter something called the Carroll Awards, and the results of the contest will be coming up pretty soon. Uh, I have a, a book that's totally different from all these others. It's called Abby of Cyrene, or Cyrene, and it's, it's uh, I think it's probably my best work, but somehow or other it hasn't been as popular as the others. It's the story of the wife of Simon of Cyrene and how she encounters um, Christ when they go to uh, Jerusalem. Well, I want to air this book in the contest and I've um, worked really hard on it and <coughs> excuse me, in order to enter the contest, the person has to be uh, have a publisher, well, a, a traditional publisher. I don't, I don't need, I'm not even looking for one at this point. But then I'm kept reading it says if you're a qualified independent publisher, a QIP, you can enter the contest. And that meant that I had to have sold enough copies of another book um, during the previous year to qualify me as a QIP. And I thought, well, I'll just check it in the dream bucket. It sold that many. So the dream bucket has been my uh, gateway toward um, other accomplishments. Absolutely. Now, we mentioned... It's also won another award, if you'd like for me to tell you about that. Please, right, please. please. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Well, there actually, it won a contest in Inspirational Writers Alive in um, Houston, Texas. It came in second place. And this is a, a an organization that's big in Texas for writers. And in the uh, book category, it placed second. And I was just really thrilled for, with that. Um, and then I put it up through um, Amazon, something called ACX, to make it an audible book. And a man named Clay Lomakai recorded it, and he did a wonderful job of recording the book. And when I 
in that you just unless you will give a sample of the text, then people uh, actually audition for it. Well, well, well. Listen, this book. I was on a little green stripe on my little uh, box, something where it was advertised, and said that this was a stipend book, which means that uh, they donated or they paid the uh, actor who recorded the book a hundred dollars per hour produced, which means that he got nine hundred dollars extra. Uh, Clay did for recording this, so I was just really thrilled that it was a stipend winner because Amazon felt that this was going to be a good seller, and it has been a wonderful seller. It's been number one um, in uh, historical Christian fiction literature uh, off and on for weeks. Well, very good. Now, you mentioned earlier that you are newlywed. We want to congratulate you on that. In fact, you're, you're still in the first year of that newlywed status as we talk. Yes, we got married on December the 26th last year. Wonderful. Now, the new husband helped you with the part of the dream bucket. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. John is um, – actually, I had the book written before um, John um, – and I got married. He was just, he, he read it. He said, I like this book. He, he shouted, but he didn't spread it. But anyway, John Cook is, um, has spent time in Atlanta. He went to Emory and he lives in Shreveport. He is a, um, retired petroleum landman. And he has a very artistic flavor. He designed the cover for the Dream Bucket. Wonderful. Each one is a little different. If you look at the the paper copy and the um, uh, Kindle book and then the Audible book, each cover is a little different, but has, each one has that shack on it. And he just seems to have an eye for things like this. And he's several of my book covers. Well, it definitely catches your eye. There's there's no uh, no question of that. It's it's a great cover, and I know you're proud of having his help and support with that. Now. Um, you're self-published. We've said that several times. Who do you use as an editor for your book? Okay. I don't have a, a content editor. I've done a lot of work with two different critique books on the dream book. I had, at that time, I used a critique partner. His name was Greg Austin. Um, for, so far as a copy editor, um, um nice lady who lives in Ohio named Kathy McKenzie has sent me. She is so good. She catches every time I put a comma instead of a period or two periods because my presbyopic eyes just can't quite see all that. And uh, she she catches all my mistakes better than anybody else I've ever seen. Uh, the amazing thing is that she is totally sight impaired, totally wow. blind. And she has some software that helps her to find these mistakes. She's a very wonderful, sweet lady. My goodness. So you have that way of seeking. Per All of us who, who write, we want our books to be as perfect as possible. And so right. you have this lady. Is let there me any? You, let me tell you something else that I do. See, I had to listen to the um, the book when... Clay was recording it, and I did the Kindle first. It's easy. If you do a Kindle, it's easy to correct it, but when you get it in print, you know, you just 
pretty much written in stone, as you know. Uh, but anyway, as I listened to the book to find his mistakes, and as I did, I found my own. Another thing I do is I listen to my books on Kindle. I, I, I get them recorded so I can listen to them. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the text-to-speech feature. And, yes, ma'am. And then I look at I look at the screen, and then I listen to it. And and I just go over it so many times. By the time I publish it, I mean, I've gone over it about a dozen times. All right, very good. Well, now, is there anything this morning that we have left out? Anything you need to bring up? I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, well, then we've done good. Um, sometimes people ask me two stories, this, uh, the dream bucket is, because it seems like the first several pages it talks about Trudy, and it's from her point of view. Well, uh, well over to the book, it switches to Zoe's point of view, the mother's point of view. Then it switches back and forth a lot, and... Um, there's, it has a couple of um, re- really vicious villains. You know, people love to hate their villains. <laughs> That's true. Well, listen, we, we really enjoyed having you here this morning. We appreciate hearing about you, hearing about uh, the background in Mississippi, and, of course, the Covington Chronicles, particularly the Dream Bucket. Our guest today has been Mary Lou Cheatham. Uh, We certainly look forward to having you back when the next installment is ready, and we hope we can count on that. Thank you so much. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for being here and sharing about your writing. Now, audience, the ball is in your court. We need you to check out Mary Lou Cheatham's books. Go to her website and also go to Amazon.com and look for them there, all the information that you'd ever want to know. So now, for now, I am Doug Dahlgren. I want to thank each of you for listening to the prologue. For my guests this hour, Mary Lou Cheatham, and for myself, I want to say have a great rest of your week. Be good to yourselves and each other. I want you to read a book. If it's not Mary Lou's, maybe you'll choose one of mine. And I'll see you folks again in just 167 hours. Take care now. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.